Hello, and welcome to the RUF Stanford podcast. RUF Stanford is a ministry that relies 100% on the generosity of donations in order to serve the Stanford community. Feel free to support us by going to give2ruf.org. We hope you enjoy the sermon. Tonight, uh, very directly, we're reading a parable that asks that question. Uh, what is love? What does it mean to love specifically your neighbor? I'm going to read it. Maybe a lot of you are familiar with it. It's one of the most notable uh, scripture passages, often called the parable of the Good Samaritan. This is the word of the Lord. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And the lawyer said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind, and your neighbors yourself. And Jesus said to him, You've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But desiring to justify himself, he said to Jesus, Who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, A man was going down to Jerusalem, uh, from Jerusalem to Jericho. And he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed on the other side. But a Samaritan... As he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave him to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the lawyer said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray. Father, this is an overwhelming story. And it's an overwhelming picture of love. And it's too overwhelming to consider in a lot of ways. And it's easier to ignore the profundity of it. But I pray as we consider it as we consider this issue of love in the midst of all the other things that we're anxious about, that we would see this is the virtue at the center of reality, at the center of what it means to be human, at the center of what it means to connect to you. So please teach us about this idea of love. Be with us, dear God. We need you, Holy Spirit. In your name we pray. Amen. The question in this text is how good is good enough? How good is good enough for God? How do I know I'm a good person? How do I know that I'm living a good life or a worthy life? And we all have these little micro-narratives that we tell ourselves about ourselves all the time and answer that question. And I suspect the best narratives happen in the daylight. Probably in the a.m. or around lunchtime as the day passes on, the narrative changes. But in the daylight we can think of ourselves in a really positive manner. And throughout the day, if we were to consider my good person, we think... Well, you know, I'm not like a lot of other people who have a lot of other kind of issues. Uh, I I work hard. Um, I try to be nice to people. And and during those daylight hours and the question of am I a good person, it's kind of easy to answer. But then I also think for all of us, there are times in the dark and usually times alone where all the things about us that we don't like come up. And we find ourselves considering am I a good person Am I the right sort of person and I'm the kind of person that I would be proud of, my parents would be proud of, that God would be proud of? And another set of narrative comes in. And the dark secrets 
and the addictions and the insufficiencies and the anger and the jealousies and all those other things that are easy to actually ignore when it's nice outside, they all come back to haunt us. And to get into Stanford, you kind of had to ask that question good enough. I actually went to college during an age when you didn't have to be good enough. All people cared about were grades. And that since then, right, now to get into Stanford, you can't simply be smart. You also have to be good enough. So you have to have all these other interesting things about you, play an instrument, be an athlete, travel. But what's most important is you had to make good grades and then have some kind of nonprofit or cause or community service you're involved in. Stanford wanted to see that you are smart and good. You had to be good enough here as well as smart enough here. And a cause or community service or nonprofit, what those are is those are objective, concrete ways you can say, I'm a good person. But we all kind of also know the secret that we don't like to admit. We do, we're invested in our causes to some degree. I'm not denying that. But we also all know the secret that we're also partially invested in our causes in order to get into Stanford, in order to feel like we're good people. In other words, our investment to some degree in our community service and our causes is actually in some way selfish, right? We were just filling out the paperwork. We were doing whatever it takes to get the verdict accepted. And it's really interesting, a writer, a columnist for the New York Times, who's not a Christian, watched Stanford students have a discussion about this very issue. What does it mean to be a good person? His name's David Brooks, and he wrote about Stanford students talking about the question of what does it mean to a good person. He said this, The discussion reinforced a thought I had in many other contexts, that community service has become a patch for morality. Many people today have not been given vocabularies to talk about what virtue is, or what character consists of, and in which way excellent lies. So they just talk about community service, figuring that if you're doing the sort of work that Bono celebrates, you must be a good person. People are good at, people are less good, sorry, at using vocabulary of moral evaluation, which is less about what sort of career path you choose than about what sort of person you are. In whatever field you go into, you're going to face greed, frustration, and failure. You may find your life challenged by depression, alcoholism, infidelity, your own stupidity, and self-indulgence. So how should you structure your soul to prepare for this? Simply working at Amnesty International instead of McKinsey is not necessarily going to help you deal with these primal character tests. When I read the Stanford discussion thread, I saw young people with deep moral yearnings but they tended to convert moral questions into resource allocation questions and questions about how to be into questions about what to do. It's worth noting that you can divide, devote your life to community service and be a total schmuck. You can spend your life on Wall Street and be a hero. Understanding heroism and schmuckdom requires fewer Excel spreadsheets and more Dostoevsky and the Book of Job. That was him examining Stanford students, talking about what it means to be good. This lawyer, when you read lawyer in the New Testament, you need to think Old Testament professor. That's what that means, an expert in the Old Testament. He asked Jesus, how good is good enough? What is a good person? What level of community of service is required to be accepted by God? Just this past week, a friend just asked, I want to know what it means to live like a Christian at Stanford. This is Jesus' answer to that question. What does it mean to live like a Christian at Stanford? How good is good enough? And Jesus, like any good Jewish rabbi, answers the question with another question. 
And he says, what do you think the law says? And he's referring to the Old Testament moral code. There's hundreds and hundreds of rules about how to live in the Old Testament. And the lawyer knows the Old Testament, and he knows how you classically summarize it. If you read something like the Ten Commandments, you'll notice the Ten Commandments is neatly divided into two areas. The first four commandments are about how you relate to God, and the last six are about how you relate to people. And so he summarizes the Old Testament law in the right way. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind, and you'll love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, that's it. And he is not being sarcastic. The answer to the question of how good is good enough, what does it mean to live like one of God's people at Stanford, is, this is the real answer. This is not a snarky secret answer that has a back door that gets you out of the answer. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. That's what it means to live as a Christian at Stanford. That's what it means to be good enough for God. And so Jesus says, that's it, do that. And there's no sarcasm. And so we look at the first half of it, but the first half of it they only address briefly. And there's a lot of, that word all shows up a disconcerting number of times in the first half. Love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. What's Jesus talking about? What does it mean to love God with all those alls? And if you've ever had a season, and, and if you haven't, Lord willing, you will, I hope you enjoy it, where you fall in love, it's intoxicating and it's fun and something really cool happens. All what happens during that season of falling in love and Lord willing, like, on into your marriage, whatever, all your free mental and emotional space gets filled up by that person. And that's one of the most exciting things, right? When you're falling in love with that girl or that guy, and they're immediate, when your mind is free, they are where your mind goes and your imagination goes. And you imagine the future with them and you imagine just them as they are. And you think about how much you enjoy them and you appreciate them. I love the, this is the way one of my friends described his marriage. He said, when I think about all the ideal moments in life I can imagine, she's in all of them. She's the key ingredient in every happy moment I can imagine from now on. And Jesus is saying, okay, that's what I'm talking about, but with God. The way the Bible talks about heaven is less spatial than most people know. It is less, if you read the book of Revelation, things like that that talk about heaven, it is less about a place or a space or where you are. And it is almost always talking about who you are with. Heaven, in the Bible's view, is about being with God. And Jesus is saying, how good is good enough? Well, it starts with all your hopes and your imaginations and your heart and your mind and your body all being completely captured by the possibility of being with God. That becomes your dream that your free mental space all runs to whenever it has a moment. Does your undistracted mind and imagination run to contemplating God? And this is one of those moments where the commonness of these words, maybe because we've heard it all your life, all your love, all your body, all your strength, we've heard them so many times that the commonness has robbed us of the ability to struggle with their profundity. And the lawyer responds to this, right? To prove that he's a good person. Saying, who is my neighbor? And that's a really interesting response. The fact that he doesn't respond to the first half of the command about loving God is telling. And I think the reason why he doesn't is because in our life's resume about how we think about ourselves as good people, it's much easier to fudge the first half. 
uh, I love God with all my whatever, whatever, whatever. You can fudge that. Let's skip to the real world concrete stuff. How much community service do I have to do? I can't quanti- you can't quantify love for God. It's impossible. So let's give each other the benefit of the doubt and move to the sorts of concrete things that I actually need on my resume. I can look at and say, I did that, and I did that, and I did that. And God can look at and say, he did that, he did that, he did that. And so first, God, he gives us that command. And Jesus starts to answer that question of, who am I supposed to help? And this is a question I feel and I hear from you all the time. Who am I responsible to try and love? I want to do this. I want to be a good person. You might even, whether or not you're a Christian, we all feel some impulse of like, it's important to be a good person to other people. Right? So where does it start? Where does it stop? What does it mean about a roommate? What does it mean about people who live on my hall? What does it mean about teammates, people in my lab, parents, siblings? Because the list keeps going on to people further and further away, people on the street, people involved in this cause that I care about. Right? Victims. What's the boundary? Where's the cutoff? That's the question. Jesus answers the question with a story. And, and you, you, we've we got to place the story in our context a little bit to understand it. Because the road from Jerusalem to Jericho was dangerous. And it would be the equivalent of saying, there was a guy who walked from San Leandro to Berkeley. And if he said that, everybody would know, well, to get from San Leandro to Berkeley, you have to walk through Oakland, which is still one of the most dangerous neighborhoods in the country. That's what Jesus is setting up. He knows their kind of geopolitical and their crime background. And he's saying, that's where it was. This took place in Oakland. And you know the neighborhoods in your hometown that you would never be in late at night. That's what he's setting up. The road road was notorious. And so this guy was in the wrong place at the wrong time. And he was mugged and he was beaten and he was robbed. Y'all know the story. But then this is what happens. He's bleeding on the side of the road. He's robbed. He's torn up. And it's early Monday morning, right? Five, or Sunday morning, 5 o'clock, 6 o'clock. And a pastor on his way to church, a pastor of a huge church, drives by and sees it. And this is what the pastor thinks. And he's a good person. I am 15 minutes away from preaching to 1,000 people, bringing the gospel, the word of life, hope, forgiveness to 1,000 people. I've got a cell phone. What I have to do is more important in this moment. And he passes him. And not only that, after that, a board member for Compassion International is on his way to a fundraiser. He is about to go ask a donor for $500,000. With that $500,000, he's going to be able to feed thousands of orphans next year with Compassion International. If he misses that donor meeting or embarrasses himself in that donor meeting by being late, there are potentially thousands of orphans that will suffer. So he passes by and he's like, this is about... What I am doing is good, and it is pressing, and it is necessary, and this is one person, and someone else can help them. The priest and the Levite that pass, we want to to immediately make them enemies, right? Bad guys, some kind of sneaky, evil, religious type. They are good people doing good things. They have important work to do that is vital for other people. And then a third person stops. And what you need to know about this guy when Jesus says a Samaritan is this is how it's received. Again, I'm going to put it in today's terms. This is somebody who grew up in the Bay Area. uh, And his family used to be really Christian a long time ago. 
and he got disillusioned with that, and his parents got disillusioned with that, and his best friend in junior high and high school was a Muslim, and they became really close, and he really found a lot of structure and understanding and solace in the Muslim faith. And he got really frustrated with just kind of the Judeo-Christian West and the way America is just so imperialistic with its politics and with its economic views. And he kind of just dove head in. And he's a Muslim now. And he is one of those, you read about these guys in the news every now and then, they're white Americans who convert to the Muslim faith. And they're bordering on that line of extremism. They are beginning to kind of buy into those narratives. And they're becoming somebody potentially dangerous over here. That's who the Samaritans were. They were people who had a Jewish heritage, who intermingled with the Assyrians, who are, were the oppressors of the Jewish people. They were the people in a Jewish culture that it was acceptable and right to despise. This kind of person is unacceptable, and it is okay for you to say that. It is okay for you to despise them. That's who they were. They were a different religion. And what we've got to recognize is every culture, including the Bay Area, has certain subsets of people that it's okay and right for us to despise and to make light of and to not take seriously. And the Samaritans were the peak of that. Who is it, who is it okay for you to despise, for us to despise? Is it lazy people? Is it entitled people? Is it intolerant people? Is it ISIS? Whatever it is, that's what the Samaritan represents. This is the person you're justifiably can dismiss. And the sting of the story is that Jesus then says, who was his neighbor? And the Old Testament professor, the lawyer, is frustrated because he knows what, the, what he has to say for the sake of kind of placating Jesus. And he says, the Samaritan. And it's like telling a story about heroism, a fable about heroism, and making a liberal say, well, it was the conservative, right? Or the frat guy say, well, it was the guy that lives at Synergy. He was the hero in your little story, right? But whoever it is, it's like a present-day Jew having to say the Palestinian. Now, what's Jesus' point in concocting what is a very... This is offensive for the lawyer to interact in the story at this point. This is his point. This is what Jesus is saying. Gospel love is not reasonable. It is not reasonable. It doesn't have reasonable bounds. And I think there's a subpoint here too as well. Hate and indifference will always be reasonable. We always have good reasons for it. That's why we feel so good when we're doing it. When we read the articles somebody posts somewhere that make us feel great about despising those people we enjoy despising. Because it makes so much sense to hate them. And Jesus is saying, yeah, and love will be unreasonable. It will feel crazy. What he is saying is there is no such thing as people who are worthy and people who are unworthy of your serving love. Jesus chooses enemies in order to say, think of the people that it's most reasonable for you to hate, justifiable for you to hate. That's who I'm talking about. That's your neighbor. When he talks about love, he doesn't first start talking about victims that grab our hearts, right? He starts talking about the enemy at our gate. Because we are great at loving people that grab our hearts because they're victims. We are great at loving people that are really, really far off. None of this is bad. Jesus is saying, what about your roommate? You see, all it takes to be a good person abroad for a cause and community service is to be good at logistics. You can be good 
doing a lot of good things in the world if you're good at logistics. What it takes to be a good person to your roommate is a whole lot more difficult. This confronts all our prejudices. This confronts us in ways we don't want to be confronted. Because there are people that have forfeited the right for us to grant them respect. Not just respect, maybe we even want to respect them, but they've definitely forfeited the right for us to sacrificially love them. And Jesus causes people to this kind of service so that the world will look onto it and be wonderfully confused by it because it will not make sense. Because we, earlier in Luke, just four chapters earlier, Jesus says, what credit is it to you to love the people that love you? There are a lot of people that are easy to love. There's nothing actually remarkable about loving people that are easy to love. So Jesus says, God longs for the world to see his heart, the tenderness and the forgiveness and the generosity and the grace of his heart. He wants the world to see his heart through the actions of his people. And if that's going to happen, if the world is going to see his heart through the action of his people, we have to love the most objectionable people. The least likely people. That's the command. The next question we have then, which Jesus immediately addresses, is what is it, at what cost? To what extent? What, all right, I'm, I'm already wrestling with this. I'm trying to not think too heavily into the people that I despise, but I know I could go further and further down the line. But at what cost do I do this? And the parable just gets worse from here. Jesus tells the extent of neighborly love. So first, what does the Samaritan do? First, he stopped. And that's notable because we wonder, how much danger do I put myself in? I can do more good by keeping myself safe, right? This is the priest and the Levite. I can do more good by staying safe and getting on to my other business. I'm a very valuable resource to the community. Somebody else can help this person. I'm above this moment. I'm for them, but I'm above this moment. I've got to get on with my busyness because it's good. But the Samaritan stops. His time is imposed on, his physical danger is at risk, his physical uh, health is at risk. Then he touched him. He didn't just touch him, but he touched him and he bound up his wounds. How many of us cringe at the possibility of touching someone in need? All right, we live in an HIV Ebola world. Touching is now terrifying to us. Then he gave up his ride for this man. He puts, he puts him on his, uh, on his donkey and then he takes him to a hotel. And then he nurses him back to health. And then he pays for a room. And then he pays for room service. And then this is the difficult part. He opens a tab. And he says, whatever it costs for however long it takes. Our question on how much or to what extent or what is the limit for love, Jesus answers it with this. Whatever it costs for however long it takes. The answer to the question of what's the limit or at what cost has nothing to do with self-preservation, with protection, with safety, with limits, or with comfort for us. The answer to the question is whatever they need for however long. Because it's not gospel love if you calculate and limit what you're willing to do out of concern for your own well-being. I've got to protect myself at some point. 
And our question for limits is motivated by that desire to protect ourselves, to shield our safety and our resources and our time from too much exposure. Opening a tab in a hotel room and walking away is far too much exposure. And Jesus wants to see that if our question is, how good is good enough? What's the extent? How much exposure? How much risk? How much time do I need to give to this to qualify as having loved my neighbor? He's saying, that is fundamentally not a question about love. If you are asking the question that way, how much is good enough to have qualified for being a good person or having loved my neighbor, you are not asking the question about love. That is a question about self-protection and reputation. That's what you're asking. How much do I have to expose myself and yet still maintain some margins of protection in order to garner the reputation of being a good person? How much do I have to expose my self-comforts, my money, my goal, my time, my energies, my score in order to feel like I'm a good person, for other people to think I'm recognized that I'm a good person, and for God to think I'm a good person? Do you see the inherent... Nonetheless, do-gooding, good things are happening, but the inherent selfishness in that. That, in fact, even our good works are often selfishly motivated. They're done with a calculating self-protectionism, limited by whatever it takes for us and God and others to feel confident in saying, okay, that's good enough. You did well. You're a pretty good person. Whatever it takes for me to get to that verdict... And then I'm checking out. Because then, once we get that verdict, we can get back to what we're really interested in, which is keeping the resources of our time and our comfort and our money and our energy and safety in order to get back to doing what we want for ourselves. And we are treating God like Stanford. How much community service does it take to get in? But real love, the kind of love that Jesus is talking about, but I think is the only kind of love... You could say is true love, it is the loss of self-regard for the sake of the well-being of another. It is the complete loss of self-regard for the sake of well-being of another. If you seek the appearance of being loving, and you seek the appearance of being good, you're going to do good things. But you will also have a built-in application process of who is suitable to receive your good works, and you will have a self-protecting limit. Real love is the loss of self-regard in the act of serving and helping and aiding and securing the well-being and flourishing of someone other than yourself. That's what love is. And the reason that we're panic-stricken all the time about appearing to be the right sort of person is because all we can do is think about ourselves, even in our noble pursuits. So we're really good at appearing good. But we're not sure we're still good enough. And we're stuck thinking about ourselves. Real love, this is what it will feel like. It will feel like freedom. Because the calculations stop. The wondering about when do I get to stop, that ends. You'll forget in a really beautiful way to care about yourself. And you can only do that if real love has captured you, if it's captured your heart, if it's captured your imagination. Then all the anxiety and the calculation of limits and candidates, it just falls away. And so the really unspoken and most pressing question here is, is it even possible to become this kind of person? The kind of person who is free from the slavery of self-regard and self-indulgence. 
no longer being someone who simply thinks being good is, is just finding the acceptable amount of asset allocation towards good works. And this story is set within Jesus' story. And he's doing that intentionally. And he knows that you can only be free to love in this way if you've been loved in this way. Only loved people can love this way. Only loved people can love this way. The reason that we're anxious to show ourselves in the world and to God that we're a good person, that we've made much of ourselves with our education and our do-gooderism and our causes, all in the hopes that if we do enough, we will show ourselves to be worthy. And so we first, when we read the story, we know what Jesus wants. First, we know he wants us to identify with the priest and Levite, right? We're reading ourselves in the story in the right way. We're busy on our way to successful life. We hope to prove ourselves. And our busyness is is doing really, really good things. And we're scared of failure. And it's actually causing us to walk right past the people and places that are desperate for love. So we read ourselves in the story first as the priest and Levite. And we get it. Ah, Jesus is confronting us like I'm missing what's right in front of me. Because I, I feel justified in moving on to what's ahead of me. Right? We're so afraid of being found to be unacceptable and unlovely that we don't have time for the difficult and unlovely people right in front of us. I get it. I'm the priest. I'm the Levite. But then we know that Jesus is pushing us to begin to identify with the Samaritan. This is how you should be. Jesus is going to tell us how to be. And this picture of selfless love unfolds and we get nervous. And we start looking at our life scorecard and we look at our instincts about people and we look at our prejudices and our self-protections and we try to identify with the Samaritan. But then we realize Jesus is calling us to something I can't handle. Limitless love for our enemies. And so by the end, we realize and discover who we are. We're the people that need love. We're busy trying to be good enough, and we fail to miss who we are in this parable. Because we're the broken, and we're the hurting, and we're the vandalized by our own sin and the darkness in our lives, by sin of others. We're the one wondering, will anyone stop for me? Right? Even Stanford students, the top of the world, we're all still wondering, will anyone notice me? Can I make myself worthy of someone else's attention and someone else's care and someone else's love? Will I be special enough for someone to care about? But our faults and our sins and our brokenness and all the things that we hate about ourselves and all the things we know God would hate about us, even the way we've been victimized by others, all make us feel like if we were truly known, if we were seen all the way through, we would be helpless and unattractive. We wish sometimes even we could walk by ourselves. Could we be loved? And the, this, this is what's so profound about this parable. I don't know where everybody is in this room. If, if you're not sure what you believe, or maybe if you're pretty convinced, I'm not a Christian, I'm pretty skeptical about this. This parable, beautifully, and Jesus kind of all the wonder in which he tells stories, actually sets you closer to the possibility of becoming this kind of person than even all of us in this room who identify as Christians. Listening to this parable will set the non-Christian in this room, if you begin to grapple with it, closer to the possibility of being this kind of loving person than even all of us who identify as Christians. This is what I mean. Because you walk in and you're thinking, I don't know what I feel about Jesus. I came with some friends. 
and I like to be here. I don't know what I think about Jesus. You might even feel mildly opposed to Jesus. You might not even be sure that God is there. Maybe you feel at odds with God. Maybe you feel at odds with Jesus. And you can't help than to read this parable in the context of Jesus' life and see that his point is he came to give all that he had for people who didn't like him. This is his love for you. Jesus is the true good Samaritan. And Jesus, you're supposed to think, Jesus would be the last person I would think would give up his safety and his resources and his time and his life. You may feel, Jesus is the last person in the world. I don't buy him. I don't like his people. He would be the last person to abandon his self-regard for me. Do you see? You're close to the kingdom of God. Because you're thinking, but I'm an enemy. Like, I don't like this Jesus thing, and he knows. But I'm broken. I'm a messed up kind of person. He knows. But it will be costly. It will be hard for him to drag me back. He knows that. The cross is the place where he takes away our wounds, where he binds up our brokenness, where he takes our sin, where he takes the things that have made us sick and made us unsightly and terribly afraid that we are unlovable. And he expresses limitless, costly, self-disregarding love for his enemies. He loves you. And not because you were good enough, but exactly when you weren't. That's the only thing that can free you to love your neighbor. We think, we hear these commands, I feel it too. We think, this is too difficult because the standard's too high. Like, dial it down a notch, Jesus. We think just he, the standard is too high. Because he's saying, even enemies all the way to the end. That's the standard. The reason it is difficult is not because he set the bar too high. That's not why this is difficult. The reason it's difficult is because we still think, I've still got to devote the majority of my resources to my life, of my life, to make myself lovable. You're taking away the time and energy I was devoting to making myself the right kind of person by asking me to go do this stuff. But you see, when you're confirmed in the free grace and the love of Jesus, when you hear his verdict over you, forgiven, loved, my son, my daughter, you have a place at my feast, I'm proud of you, you're forgiven, I have enough grace for everything you can offer me. When you hear and you begin to rest in his love for you, this is what happens. All the resources that up to this point we have allocated to making something of ourselves so that we could feel lovable, they're freed up because you're loved. You don't have to make yourself lovable anymore. So your time and your energy and your money and all all that you have, guess what? All those resources are freed up to give away. You don't have to make yourself lovable anymore. You don't have to work harder. That's the interesting thing about this parable. You just need to explore the almost incomprehensible and supreme love that Jesus has for you. You do that and you'll find out you've got a lot of free time. You got a lot of free energy. You even have a lot of free money to go and love people. Let's pray.